Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. And now we want to turn to our nation's capital and Nick Wadhams to uh, get a little bit of a perspective on what is happening today. I know that we are awaiting joint statements by President Donald Trump and uh, South Korean President Moon Jae-in that is scheduled uh, to come up, I guess, in about 10 or 15 minutes. And we will, of course, carry that. It'll be a a joint uh, press conference and statement uh, at the Rose Garden. Nick, what's the most important thing that you believe this this meeting between the president and uh, the South Korean president is going? Going to yield? Uh, well, there are two big issues here. One uh, on the political front is the issue of North Korea and how to deal with uh, its continued ambitions to develop uh, nuclear weapons and a ballistic missile program. So the South Korean president, uh, President Moon, is new. Uh, he has uh, sought to take a sort of uh, more moderate approach to North Korea, possibly including negotiations. Uh, President Trump, meanwhile, is saying that is not what he wants to do. Uh, he wants uh, more uh, pressure, specifically economic pressure, on North Korea to try to uh, bend uh, North Korea to the U.S. will. So how they resolve that is going to be a biggie. Well, didn't and they, they, they uh, just slap sanctions on the Chinese bank that uh, reportedly is uh, laundering money for uh, North Korea? That's right. I mean, so this is another uh, what, what you see the, the, the new ways in which the, the administration is is trying to exert pressure. They really see China as the key to uh, North Korea because uh, trade with China constitutes so much of the North Korean economy. So the idea is okay. We're going to go after these Chinese banks basically to bring China into line and tr- to try to get its help uh, and more cooperation and really putting the squeeze on North Korea. Nick, uh, the South Korean president who's meeting with President Trump. Trump. Uh, Moon Jae-in is new. This is a month into his uh, tenure as president. Uh, How does his outlook on the U.S. differ from his predecessors, and how does this change the dynamic uh, with respect to North Korea? Well, I mean, we're we're really going to see how this plays out. But I mean, the big one is that he does favor uh, a sort of uh, a more contact with North Korea rather than uh, the previous government's uh, uh, view, which was more in line with the U.S. Uh, the other is he's sort of ambivalent about this uh, missile defense system that the U.S. Uh, has put into uh, South Korea uh, to protect against uh, uh, missile launches from the north. So, so the South Korean president has has expressed uh, some concern about that they've they wanted to limit um uh, basically because as as part of uh, this is something that both china and north korea really really oppose they say this is a it could start a new weapons race in the region and and it just sort of inflames tensions and so as he seeks sort of closer or um, better relations with china um and then also to improve ties with north korea he says let's go a little bit slower on this we don't want to go quite as quickly as the u.s has has sought well, the United States has, what, nearly 30,000 American soldiers, sailors, and uh, airmen and Marines in South Korea? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is a hugely important uh, base uh, for the U.S. Uh, the U.S. troops are all along the North Korean border, and this is really a big issue uh, for how the U.S. proceeds and something that constrains uh, U.S. options because North Korea has made clear that the U.S. 
if the U.S. does anything like uh, remotely belligerent, like a, a military strike, uh, you know, North Korea has hundreds upon hundreds of artillery pieces lined up across the border. Seoul is 30 miles away. Uh, you know, a single artillery barrage could literally kill tens of thousands of people, including U.S. troops. So that's weighing heavily in, in President Trump's uh, deliberations on this. South Korea President Moon Jae-in began his uh, visit to the U.S. with the announcement of a number of uh, trade deals with the U.S., agreeing to buy uh, more shale, agreeing to invest more in companies here in the U.S. How many of these moves are new and how many of them are sort of uh, building on established programs that South Korea already had? I mean, this, there's a mix here. Uh, the U.S. and South Korea have been working on a bilateral investment treaty uh, for some time, so that that has been a huge issue. Uh, you know, one challenge, of course, is that President Trump uh, has made uh, the U.S. trade deficit uh, an important part of his uh, administration, and uh, really believes that uh, predatory practices toward the U.S. Uh, will not stand. So he is he's basically saying that you know the U.S. has suffered trade deficits for for many decades, and this is a is a top priority, uh, and the U.S. does have a trade deficit with South, Korea, South with South Korea that it wants to fix. So, um, I mean, we're just getting sort of early commentary out of his his meeting with the, the South Korean president from the Oval Office. Uh, but certainly, this is going to weigh on on the deliberations between the two leaders, President Trump's concerns over the U.S. trade deficit. Nick, uh, yesterday, President Donald Trump was at the uh, Department of Energy speaking about the renaissance of uh, American energy production. Uh, one aspect is natural gas. Uh, South Korea, I believe, has already said that they would like to import U.S. natural gas. Is that correct? That's that's right. I mean, this is really something that the administration has pushed. Um, And the State Department actually a couple of weeks ago uh, made a big announcement about the first shipment of U.S. uh, LNG uh, to Poland. Um, And and this is something that the administration really sees as sort of the way forward, not only ensuring U.S. energy security, but uh, seeking, uh, you know, for the U.S. to profit off of uh, exports of energy. So uh, this fits into a broader constellation where the U.S. is uh, seeking to export LNG uh, in Asia, Europe, and, and around the world. Nick, not to get off script here, but I'm just wondering, how much clout does President Trump hold with foreign leaders right now? He is not a popular president. He's, you know, dealing with so much intrigue and drama, uh, you know, and I don't know how much of it is just, you know, fit for tabloids and how much of it is actually uh, substantive for foreign leaders. But does this matter? I think it does matter. This is a big issue that we've all been trying to answer over the last several months, particularly because there are often contradictions between what President Trump says and what his cabinet says. So you have Secretary of State Rex Tillerson saying one thing on China and South Korea. You have President Trump often taking a much harder line. Uh, So officials really don't know uh, where to come down. Uh, I mean, in the end, though, he is the president of the United States, uh, you know, the most powerful nation in the world. And uh, so what we're seeing generally is that while leaders want to believe and speak with and listen to the cabinet secretaries, they're sort of forced to take President Trump seriously, regardless of what he tweets or he says. The tweets, I would say, they understand are more toward a domestic audience, his base. Uh, But there is a lot of concern and confusion about those contradictory messages between President Trump uh, and his top cabinet officials. Well, talking about cabinet officials, I want you to just give us some thoughts about the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, because you know, there's that ongoing internal review of the State Department and what the estimate is that it could face a 30 percent budget cut and an elimination of 2,300 jobs. Is that going to happen? 
Well, uh, I mean, this is certainly where the Secretary of State wants to go. Uh, however, the, the biggest opposition he faces uh, will be from Congress. And uh, the fact that Congress does not want a, a, a big cut like this, 30 percent. I mean, when, when Secretary Tillerson went to the Hill a couple of weeks ago to defend the proposed budget cuts, the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Tennessee Senator Bob Corker, Corker, basically just said, listen, this isn't even worth talking about. There's no way this budget is going to go through. So let's think sort of more in the future about how we can align our interests, because there's no way we're going to give you this 30 percent cut. So you have this really weird situation where the secretary of state is is begging for cuts to the agency he leads. And Congress is saying, no, we're not going to let you cut your agency. And at the same time, uh, you can reference the historical remarks of Secretary of Defense James Mattis, who back in 2013 at a National Security Council advisory meeting said that if you don't fund the State Department fully, then I need to buy more ammunition immediately. He said, I think it's a cost-benefit ratio. The more that we put into the State Department's diplomacy, hopefully the less we have to put into a military budget. Do they not speak to each other? Uh, well, actually, that's one of the more interesting things about this administration. Secretaries Tillerson and Mattis are uh, uh, said to be close friends and to speak speak to each other frequently. I mean, Secretary Tillerson frames this as sort of uh, bringing the State Department into the 21st century. He says, look, you've seen this budget just increase uh, by uh, vast amounts, double since basically 2008. So we sort of want to realign to a national security focus and get away from a lot of the overlap. So you would have special envoys for certain regions while you also have bureaus that cover those regions. So he's sort of portraying this as a bid to sort of streamline and consolidate the, the, the department. Of course, then you have people who echo Secretary Mattis who say, listen, you can't, uh, you can't cut by 30 percent and still engage in ineffective diplomacy. And this is just something we're going to have to see how it plays out over the next um, you know, coming months and years. Has the president appointed the relevant assistant secretaries at the State Department in order to make the machinery of the State Department run? No, I mean, th- those are starting to come in in a trickle. Uh, but by and large, those there are dozens of posts that remain unfilled in the department. And that is really the biggest concern when you talk to career diplomats. And then also to get back to your early question about foreign leaders, uh, you know, a lot of foreign ambassadors we've spoken to say they just don't know who to go to at the State Department. So they end up going to people at the NSC or directly at the White House. Uh, so what you're sort of seeing is in large part a sidelining of uh, the State Department where because there is an absence of senior staff, uh, the State Department gets avoided. That happens both with foreign leaders, but also with other agencies in the government. They don't want to deal with an acting assistant secretary or a right. deputy acting assistant. They want to go straight to the most powerful person they can. That usually these days means the NSC or the White House. I'm trying to put together the idea that the uh, the secretary uh, that the uh, foreign department is not fully staffed. That we have uh, the secretary of state that is having some turmoil underneath him, as well as a president who do- doesn't always have a coherent message with the people uh, around him. And pairing this with the travel ban that just took effect, how much of, is this really having a, a serious? deleterious impact on the U.S.'s reputation internationally? Or how much of this is just the classic turmoil when a new president comes into office? Well, I mean, this is really something we're going to have to see 
how it plays out because there is a sort of standard amount of turmoil that always happens uh, where where there's an adjustment, particularly when uh, it goes from one uh, party to the other. However, I mean, it is undeniable that the president uh, has shifted foreign policy to such a degree uh, that has led to uh, skepticism, for example, uh, when the U.S. comes into uh, agreements with other countries like on the Iran nuclear deal or on the Paris Climate Accord, and then leaves or expresses a desire to leave those as as Trump has done with the Paris climate deal or saying that the Iran deal was a bad deal, though that's been left in place for now. That just creates uncertainty. Um, And so that's really what you're seeing now. The biggest question overseas is a question about we we don't really know where the U.S. stands now. We don't know what their intentions are. We don't know whether President Trump really wants better relationships uh, with Russia, for example. So the biggest thing is, is a lack of confidence and certainty in where the U.S. stands. Nick, uh, I'm looking at the job openings that currently exist. Undersecretary for Civilian Security, uh, Human Rights and Democracy, Undersecretary for Economic Growth and Energy, all vacant. Uh, Is uh, Rex Tillerson relying on uh, too few people? I understand his chief of staff, Margaret Peterlin, and uh, the policy planning uh, division, I guess, no, I beg your pardon, uh, former assistant secretary of state, Brian Hook. Are are they really the point people for, for Tillerson? Yes. I mean, so what, what we know is that he relies on a very uh, small circle of aides uh, to sort of achieve his goals. And that has raised concerns about people saying that their requests for information and there's, you know, they seek guidance and things like that. That goes unanswered because this group is just so small and so overwhelmed. I mean, so what is happening and what his explanation is, is that, listen, we're doing a massive restructuring of this department. We want to cut jobs. We want to fold bureaus together. We want to reorganize things. We don't want to hire people for those jobs until we know we want to keep those jobs. So this is a process that's going to take six months or so. Uh, But currently, yes, it is a very small circle of advisors that he relies on. Nick Wadhams, thank you so much for joining us and helping us understand this really complicated situation. Nick Wadhams is a foreign policy reporter uh, for Bloomberg News. To learn more about the municipal market, who better to turn to than the editor for Bloomberg Briefs Municipal Markets, Joe Mysack. Joe, thank you very much for being here. Um, boy, I guess you would be a rich person if you got a nickel for every time you got to utter the words Illinois or Puerto Rico this year. Let's start with Illinois. What is going on? Are they really going to put together a budget eventually? I don't think so. I all right. Think, uh, done, done and dusted. They done, can all go home it. for. Thank you so much. Yeah, Joe Mysack. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there is each side in this battle has so much invested that it's almost um, it's almost philosophical. So you have no, it's exactly philosophical. So you have these two differing political points of view. And uh, tell people that are not familiar necessarily with the internal politics of the state of Illinois what is going on here. Okay, and and I guess the simplest way I could put it is that the Democrats have been in power for, you know, it seems like decades now, and they have a Republican governor, and the Republican governor has said, well, you know, we should be doing more Republican things, we should be cutting spending, and we should be lowering taxes, and we should be paying attention to this enormous 
pension debt we have. And the Democrats uh, are digging in their heels and saying, well, no. And so it's essentially a big battle, I would say, between your your sort of Democrats slash public employees and the uh, Republican governor on the other side. And, you know, they've gone two years without a budget. And I could very easily see them going another two years without a budget. I mean, right now, there's almost, from a philosophical point of view, there's almost no point in, uh, in uh, you know, giving up what you believe in. So I think both sides are going to stick uh, to to their guns, yeah. and they're not going to pass a budget. Right. Well, um, I, I love philosophy, and I'd love to uh, go a little bit deeper into philosophy, but let's get to the reality. What is the actual consequence of not having a budget for two years and then another three years and then ever? Horrible. Uh, you know, it's cascading through the system. We carried a story just the other day about how the universities may lose, uh, some of the universities there, public universities, may lose their accreditation because uh, the money is going to be cut off. There's just not enough you know, money in their, you know, various continuing resolutions and way you could get money out there uh, for them. And, you know, very gradually uh, you see the state become paralyzed. And, you know, what what do we see, you know, after that? Well, uh, I know S&P, for example, has warned the state specifically that if they don't have a budget by this evening, actually, ju- well, July one, right, eleven fifty nine. That they uh, they may lower their rating to junk. They become the first junk rated state. All right. Well, that is a distinction that uh, I don't think anyone really wants to put on a bumper sticker. But do they? Uh, do the people involved, whether it's the governor, whether it's the the Democratic uh, lawmakers, uh, do they recognize the long term effects of of what they're doing? I think that uh, they they are sticking to their philosophical guns on this one. Yeah, but you can't eat philosophy, right? I mean, you have to pay the bills, buy the groceries, and you know, fund the police and so on. Uh, you know, there. There's no know, popular up- uprising that's you going have to... an election next year, and that's you know when when things will be decided. Uh, it's it's shocking to me. It's astonishing. And yet what we have here, it's just it's almost purely political. Illinois is a very wealthy state. There's uh, lots of things they could do. Um, this is almost all political. There's nothing economic about this. And yet right now the bills are piling up and the uh, certainly the pension liabilities are growing. Yeah. But bondholders, they don't care. They're like, yeah, opportunity. Well, some of the yes, you're right. Some of the big banks this week and last week put out calls saying, you know, there could be some real opportunity in this Illinois paper. And they're probably right because that service is going to be one of the last things to be affected. Great. Well, philosophy turns into profits for somebody, but certainly not the, uh, the people of Illinois. I, I want to move to Puerto Rico because. Uh, really? You're moving to Puerto Rico. <laughs> <laughs> All right, they, Joe, they'd fine. be very happy Actually, that you did so. I will be honest. Right now, I could, I could, I could live with being on an island and uh, enjoying palm trees and an ocean. But I wanted to touch base about the uh, Federal Oversight Board voting unanimously to push the government's electric utility into bankruptcy. This is after they had a pact with creditors that they decided to uh, negate, renege on. What's going on here? I mean, does this set a bad tone for the rest of uh, the bankruptcy proceedings, or does it not even matter because it's such a mess? And who cares? Um, I I think that the uh, federal oversight board taking a uh, 
taking some action, taking a point of view here, is probably what a lot of people in the bond market uh, who view it objectively uh, have been waiting for. Of course, not the bondholders and certainly not the people who were stood to get 85 cents in the dollar in the settlement on that uh, on those PREPA bonds. And of course, right now, those PREPA bonds, the Electric Power Authority in Puerto Rico, they're trading at around 50 cents in the dollar. So, uh, wow. Yeah, the, the uh, board is is becoming more activist, as it should. And the politicians, let's face it, are going to use the board as uh, something to hide behind. There's going to be things done that the board decides that the politicians are going to say, well, our hands were tied. But you know what's interesting about this? When this fiscal control board was implemented, uh, and this was under U.S. legislation that uh, instated this board, a lot of bondholders thought that it would benefit them, that this fiscal control board would come in and exercise some uh, restraint in government and curb excessive spending and help create a more conservative budget. And then it, this board has turned out to be anything but friendly to them. Well, uh, yes, you know, you're right. Several bondholders, some bondholders thought, you know, finally that they uh, would get some help here. But no. The Oversight Board, uh, you know, there were several members of the Oversight Board, uh, one of whom, David Skeel, uh, advocated bankruptcy for states. At that point, he was advocating it, uh, thinking that uh, mainly public pensions would get hit. But, of course, we now know that the uh, bondholders seem to be almost the first in line. Well, Joe, you know, it, it strikes me that the, the board, for example, has already warned that if the budget is not corrected, right, they want more cuts, they want more specifics, uh, you could end up with furloughs or a reduction or elimination, for example, of the Christmas bonus that is paid to workers. These are all things that the governor of Puerto Rico, uh, Ricardo Rossello, has said, no, we, we, we this, this would, you know, this is not a good thing because if you start taking away money from these people, there's not going to be an economy in order to get out of the hole that they've already dug for themselves. Well, but uh, trims do have to be made. Cuts do have to be made. The uh, the uh, size of the governmental sector in Puerto Rico is entirely too large. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are going to be, I mean, then the governor has to say what the governor is going to say. He's a very politically ambitious fellow. Um, but uh, there are uh, austerity is going to take place. And it's probably going to be ten years of austerity if if we've learned any of ten years. In the past. Oh, sure. Yeah, I feel like this is the slowest moving train wreck ever because I feel like we've been talking about it forever, and and, and people are going to talk about it for the next uh, ten years. And it's you know it's sort of slow moving, and it's a, a huge issue. What's the next deadline we should be looking for that could possibly offer some clarity in what the road forward will look like? There's you know right now the I know there are some hearings in July. Um, but the, you know, clarity from Puerto Rico, no, 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 no. <laughs> Well, but, but, you know, for example, I'll, I'll give you a sense. There was something, there was a story that caught my eye yesterday, uh, that the SEC is going after some Wall Street banks for selling Puerto Rico debt in 2014, underwriting a couple billion dollars of new bonds, even though the island was clearly in financial distress. Do you know anything about this? I mean, is that something that's important to you? Predicted here first. All right. Several, well, actually, that's uh, true. You did. Several yes, weeks ago. They're going after Wall Street. And who could possibly 
be surprised by this. They're going after the underwriters. They're going after salespeople who who sold bonds, underwrote bonds. Uh, you know, who could be surprised after Puerto Rico built up this $74 billion debt load? You know, the, the, you know, you could sort of, on the one hand, you could sort of accept it and say, well, this is, this is what's going on and they'll, you know, honor their debts. On the other hand, you could keep the idea in mind that this is getting way out of hand. This island is ferociously over leveraged and it cannot come to a good end, which indeed it has not. Well, I was just looking also at uh, the pension liabilities. Uh, I think the public pension liabilities, I think it's $45 billion. I know this is going to be a story that keeps on giving, and uh, you're going to keep giving us the details. Thanks very much. Joe Mysack is the editor for Bloomberg Brief's Municipal Market Letter. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for being with us. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about manufacturing in the United States and its connection to trade. I want to bring in James Manyika. He is the chairman of the McKinsey Global Institute. He's also a senior partner at McKinsey and Company, and he comes to us today uh, from the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Uh, Mr. Manyika, thank you very much for being with us. Tell us about this new report that McKinsey has released about manufacturing jobs in the United States and the role of manufacturing uh, in in the global economy that we play? Uh, so thank you. Thank you for having me. Manufacturing is actually a very important sector for the U.S. economy. It makes huge contributions to value-added growth, to productivity, to our trade balance, uh, and it also contributes to uh, R&D and innovation. So it's a very important sector for the U.S. economy that punches way above its weight. And I think what's exciting is that when you look forward Many of the trends in the global economy, everything from what's happening with digitization, what's happening with advanced manufacturing, what's happening with uh, how the, the factors that, are, that we need as input, such as energy, are playing in America's favor. This actually sets up America to actually do very well in manufacturing. The thing that we, we point out, though, is that I think it's important to remember that Manufacturing now only employs about 9% of the workforce. So while, in fact, America can do better and revive manufacturing, uh, it's not going to be the massive big solver for the jobs challenge that we've got in the United States. I think we can do better than 9%, but it's going to take a, you know, it's not going to reverse the trend that we've seen in job growth uh, in the U.S. economy-wide. But it's a very, very important sector. James, can you just give us a little bit of perspective on why now? Why will the U.S. be able to gain share in manufacturing now, albeit perhaps uh, not in the form that it used to be? Uh, Well, four things going on. Uh, One, we're seeing all these industries digitized. So the advent of uh, 3D printing, the advent of use of digital technologies in manufacturing, those are things that the U.S. has enormous strengths in, and they are transforming manufacturing. So we start on that first factor on a, on a position of strength. The second thing is that if you look at value add in manufacturing, it's migrating towards uh, what you might call the advanced industries, things that we're good at, things like aircraft manufacturing, uh, machinery, uh, medical products, and so forth, and away from the factors that used to be very labor-intensive like textiles. 
and uh, and furniture manufacturing and so forth. So that's the second important factor. And the third factor is you have to recognize the huge boon we've had in energy costs. There are parts of manufacturing like chemicals uh, uh, and other places where the cost of energy makes a big difference. And so now that we've become a low-cost energy provider, that actually tilts the balance in our favor. And of course, we have to remember that the U.S. is still by far and large the largest market, demand market for manufactured products. So all of those things work in our favor, and they're shifting and tilting the balance in our favor. But we have to step up and deliver the skills, make the investments to be able to capture those opportunities. Uh, James, what role do foreign companies and foreign direct investment in the United States play in the manufacturing sector? We were just talking earlier about manufacturing things such as appliances, electronics, as well as automobiles. Uh, they play a huge role. I mean, historically, if you look at the last sort of 10 to 15 years, the U.S. has not historically gotten what I'd call its fair share of um, foreign direct investment. But that has been changing in the last few years. So most foreign companies will look to the United States and say, we want to be close to the end markets, to where the demand is. So you've seen that happen in automotive. You've seen that happen in, in, even in regionally in places like South Carolina, where we've now started to get more direct foreign investment. And that's a good thing, because what it does is that's more investment into this economy. It strengthens those manufacturing clusters, and it's a good thing. So we need more of that, and we should encourage it. So how could the U.S., just real quick, what are the three things the U.S. could do to kind of export expedite uh, this expansion uh, of its market share with respect to manufacturing? I think a few things. First, we, are, we have to unleash the, uh, the ability, quite frankly, the incentives for companies, both domestic and foreign, to invest in this economy. That's why any changes, whether it's to the tax code or to incentives that open up the ability to invest and encourage investment here will make a big difference. Second, I think we have to embrace the innovations that are coming, digitization and so forth. Already we see even in our own work at McKinsey, yeah. not, enough, not enough companies are embracing the possibilities of digitization. A few firms who are at the frontier are making big right. investments. We need more to make investments. And finally, we've got to solve the skills challenge. And one of the biggest challenges in manufacturing is the massive skills gap we have between what this, this sector right. needs and what we're producing. James, That's a big we're, challenge. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. James Manika, chairman of the McKinsey Global Institute based in New York City. This is Bloomberg. Well, you may soon be buying your groceries from an Amazon-owned company, namely Whole Foods, and here to tell us about some of the opportunities that the uh, deal has presented is uh, own Bill Smead. Bill is the uh, chief executive officer and the chief investment officer of Smead Capital Management, uh, helping to manage more than $2.2 billion of assets. He is based in Seattle, and he can be followed on Twitter at SmeadCap. So, Bill Smead... Uh, Amazon, it's going to own everything. We know that. But in the meantime, before they get to that world domination position, you might be able to make some money betting the other way, correct? Well, I don't mean against them, but the way we like to frame it is three weeks ago, everyone that invests said, I have to adjust everything to the new world of the Jetsons cartoon show. You remember the Jetsons? 
So, and of course. So, so, so you jumped in the vehicle and said where you wanted to go. It took you there. The robotic uh, lady robot that, that, that was the maid. Rosie. The, yeah, Rosie, the whole thing. Her, her, and their dog, Elroy. Dun, 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 dun. So, so the Jetsons got priced into everything three weeks ago. And the problem is, whether it was seven years ago with electronic uh, electric cars, whether it, 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 anything like that, it always takes way longer to happen than people think. Well, maybe so, but certainly we have seen the retail sector completely uh, disrupted by Amazon and the Amazon effect. And, you know, certainly uh, there is pressure and it is increasing on some of these grocery store chains to uh, lower their prices, compete online. Uh, How do you counter that? I mean, how does a Walmart compete with an Amazon when Amazon has a grocery chain as well? Well, well, the biggest problem on prices in the grocery store business has been food deflation. And, I, you know, six-month pickup in commodity markets would, would in, in agricultural commodities, would go a long way to solving that problem for them. So, so I, I think everybody needs to be careful because a lot of the technology right now that people are excited about takes away things to do. And we use the extreme example of uh, the Native Americans are getting back at white people by sucking money out of them at casinos all across the nation. And gambling casino revenue is at record levels. And why is that? Because people need something to do. So one of our eight criteria is you've got to meet an economic need. And there's a point of diminishing returns taking things to do away from people. And and so uh, that nobody thinks about that much, but we're it, it's like in 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 drug and biotech they have a thing called bioethics, right? What what is the ethical factor involved right. in in, in, well, in it? So you're making two points here, right? So one of them is people need to do something with their day. Uh, so going to the grocery store is one of those things, and people aren't going to do everything online because at some point they actually have to stand in, under, in order to prevent atrophying of their muscles. So that's number one uh, as a point, and then the number two point is uh, that you're saying. Saying any kind of weakness we've seen in the grocery store sector has less to do with Amazon and more to do with food deflation. So if we see any kind of agricultural inflation, that will solve that. Is that correct? Well, so you're saying basically people shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Some of these grocery store chains might actually have more upside, especially if there is some kind of inflation in agricultural. Yeah, for example, uh, uh, m- much more than retail in retail. Amazon's hurt retail, but also there hasn't been a big wave of fashion change. And fashion change is, for example, for a company like Nordstrom, is a huge thing. Uh, so fashion change is a big factor the same way that uh, you know price deflation has been a big negative for the grocery stores. So uh, remember, uh, uh, the, this, the, the percentage, we're dealing at the margin. For 20 years, delivering groceries has been where money goes to die. Think about that. Do you, do you realize the worst career move in the history of the United States of America was the senior managing partner of Anderson Consulting leaving and taking the job as the CEO at Webvan in 1999, who three years later was bankrupt. Four years later, Accenture went public. He would have been worth hundreds of millions of dollars today if he still had the stock he would have got. So, so that is a graveyard. You show me one company that has proven that they can deliver profitably. 
All right. Now let let let's if we leave that debate aside for just a second, and I want you to talk to us about Walgreen Boots yeah. Alliance. Yeah. That has been in the news, Rite Aid, and so on. Uh, it is great to snap your fingers and say, "All right, we're going to buy a company, and it's all going to be great. We're going to put everybody else out of business." You have a different perspective. Tell me about Walgreens. Well, first Boots of all, Alliance. it's a heavily regulated industry with pharmacies pharmacy uh, the, the pharmacies there's three main drug distributors in the united states of america so for example let's just hypothesize that actually amazon did have a successful foray into that area well walgreens owns 25 percent of one of those three distributors amerisource bergen and, and if they wanted to they could just buy the other 75 percent so they would then be distributing to amazon as well so so the beauty of it is uh them getting hit by that is ludicrous but here's the pricing difference it's a staple. Walgreens is one of the staple companies. The average staple trades at 22 to 25 times earnings with a similar dividend to theirs, and it trades at 15. So, so you know, uh, the death by Amazon is costing them one-third of their market capitalization. That's what drives stock pickers like us. That's, that's how we make our money. And it just happens to be run by Jim Skinner, who used to be the CEO of McDonald's. Bill Smead, thank you so much for thank joining you. us. Bill Smead, yeah. Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer of Smead Capital Management, which oversees uh, nearly $2.5 billion and is based in Seattle. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.